Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for July 1st, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, a big show tonight coming on the program in about 20 minutes. Um, she came on earlier this year, coming back for her second appearance from Daily Coast, Miss Kelly Masias, and we're looking forward to having Kelly on, talking about a little bit of national stuff. Actually, she, even though she's not a Georgia request, uh, resident, wanted to talk about the Georgia governor's race, so we're going to do that too in just a little while as well. And we're going to look at that more from a national point of view, given um, I think it was Seth Meyer's show uh, just in the past uh, week or two. But first off, The three of us, we're going to talk a little bit of foreign policy because Donald Trump just seems to make news and noise and do erratic things every week. But he may have had one of his, in some ways, worst and some ways just craziest foreign policy weeks um, of his presidency. And it goes a lot to do that. But um, I guess some of it's some news we got. Just earlier this summer, about three weeks ago, we had the big summit over in um, Taiwan with or Singapore with Kim Jong-un, and um, he got promises, very vague promises, that they would um, ramp down their nuclear program. I think some of those assurances were even a little bit before the summit. And then Donald Trump just, you know, gave away the farm, essentially, um, with all the things he got, and there was nothing new. There was no inspections, no timelines, nothing concrete like there was in the Iran deal that he liked to criticize so much. Well, this past week, U.S. intelligence has learned that North Korea not only has not ramped down what they were doing with their nuclear program, they may have continued on and ramped it back up. Um, Tim, How bad did Donald Trump get played, if this is true? Well, I mean, our intelligence services now believe that North Korea has increased production of fuel for for nuclear weapons. Obviously, Kim Jong-un used Trump. He he got everything negotiable that he wanted, including some things he didn't even ask for. Uh, I think Trump gave up much and got nothing. You know, Trump tweeted that North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat. Well, uh, I mean, Kim is grabbing every concession he can while keeping his weapons. There's no specific deal. um, I mean, if they are intended to get rid of their nukes, then why are they expanding their fuel production? He could play this thing out for for years, guys. He he could he could hang on to those nuclear weapons while negotiating 
for even more concessions. And I think that's that's what he's going to try to do, and it's obvious what he did. And uh, this is what happens when you send someone over there that, uh, by his own admission, said he didn't prepare too much. And I, I guess he didn't know in the first 10 seconds, did he? <laughs> I think all of us knew 10 seconds before he even planned the thing uh, what was going to happen because I guess most, the average American, probably even a lot of his supporters, wouldn't trust Kim Jong-un. I mean, that's why you have inspectors and you have timelines and whatnot, Catherine. Um, how bad does this look for Donald Trump at home? Well, you know, I don't think it – has much of an impact on his base. They all they'll just no. say, "Well, he's a, you know, he's a cheater." Uh, Kim Jong Un, he's a cheater, and and you know, Donald, you know, the president was going in with, you know, honor and respect for the office, and he just, you know, didn't didn't return that respect. I, I mean, I think that's the kind of tone that uh, that his base will take. The rest of us will be our, you know unsurprised but at the same time um fearful uh or reticent uh, at least about you know what the future might hold um with you know increased nuclear um weaponry in North Korea and you know of course what does it what we can only imagine what the South Koreans and the Chinese and the Japanese think um so uh, you know i don't but i don't think it has um, much of an impact on his face at all. I, I mean, I think they'll just be like, well, he trusted them and that was a mistake, but he went in with, you know, the best intentions and blah, blah. Don't you think so? Well, I, I, want, to get, I want to get the other oh, side, but, but I, I keep hearing the same thing. Nothing phases his base. And this right. is a much larger discussion, but are we ever going to have anything that phases his base? Tim, do you think so? No, I don't think so. That bunch is unshakable, and believe me, he he himself has attempted everything he could to shake his own face. Uh, the only thing I keep wondering about, and I guess this is a tactical decision on his part, he seems to be doing nothing, including with this Korea thing, try to accept that base. It's almost as if yeah. he keeps going back to shore up the base that he has, thinking that's just enough to get him through. So far, that's been true. Um, but I just don't know. Uh, I, I, I just don't know in the long run if, if, if that's, you know, going to be enough. It, it, it remains to be to be seen, but I don't. Uh, what we're talking about here with North Korea that 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 just doesn't seem to have helped him uh, add any converts. Let's put it that way. In his base, I've talked to some of them about this, and you know what they say. Well, we don't know what's going on, and you don't know what's going on, and time will tell, and blah 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 blah. There's, there's just no way you can reason with these people to change them one iota, including something like this, 
which is right there in front of them to read. So, yeah, it's and but the funny thing is, is sure, we three of us don't know on our own, and the people you're talking to, their supporters, they don't know on their own either. But that's why we have these intelligence officials. That's the whole point of intelligence. Um, you actually, you know, do research and other maneuvers to find out information and then evaluate the information and do research, which, of course, or I'm sorry, make decisions and, and whatnot. And, of course, that's probably antithesis to the modern Republican Party, um, things such as that. Well, let's kind of get to the other side of it. We've got, you know, how does it play in America? Um, obviously, people that are against him, it's not going to bring him over. People that are for him. Maybe this doesn't phase them. Who knows what will. But then there's people around the world, and they were probably on shaky ground with him, his judgment, other than a few. Maybe the dictator from Philippines and, of course, um, the premier of Russia, Vladimir Putin. Um, and now Kim Jong-un, he's got his own little collection of guys. But um, what does this further do? With what is America's allies, I really don't think they're Donald Trump's allies, but America's allies that have to look at the total world picture because it's not like North Korea can only point missiles at America. They could choose to point them at many, many other countries, one of which this could be South Korea, who they he didn't consult South Korea on any of this either. What does um, leaders around the world do with this latest piece of information that Donald Trump went on the summit and just, you know, just got used by this um, really 30-year-old, uh, rather new uh, world leader, Catherine? I think they, I mean, I think publicly they say, oh, this is a, you know, an unfortunate turn of events, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, between each other, I'm sure they're rolling their eyes and saying, you know, why didn't he prepare better? Why didn't he do bilateral talks? Why did he, or multilateral talks? Why did he agree to this in the first place? This was, um, we all knew this was not a good strategy. But, you know, in public, they have to be um, somewhat diplomatic about it, I, I would think. It would, be, it would be interesting to yeah. be a fly on the wall at the NATO conference in a, a couple weeks. Oh. In health Yeah, well, but I mean, at what point? Do they have to do more? Because, you know, you have to look at throughout history all the things America's done. And America, back at the start of the 1700s, advanced democracy. Democracy was very – not really a concept. Um, it was no more than a concept. It was nowhere in reality, and America put that into place. And then through two world wars, America um, was what kept people like Hitler and the Kaiser from taking over all of Europe. Um, and who knows where that ends? You know, America um, throughout the Cold War, you know, sometimes probably overzealously, but still uh, protected democracies and places. And, and, you know, stood as a world leader for something good. And if you have America that can, the leader at least, that can get completely get the wool pulled over his eyes, how dangerous and, and scary is that? to all these other leaders all across the globe, Jim? Well, it, it, it is very unsettling to them. Uh, one thing they 
all are thinking about, I think. I mean, these people around the world, whether they be democratically elected presidents, dictators, uh, presidents for life, no, no, no matter where they are, they, they all have one thing in common that our president doesn't grasp. But they're politicians. They know how politics and government works. He doesn't. He doesn't think about that. They know that America has a system of checks and balances. They know that we have a midterm election coming up this year and a presidential election in two years. I think they have no faith in Donald Trump, but they still have faith in this country and its system of government that that. Uh, an opposition will attain some measure of power to oppose and even stop Trump on some of his foolishness and that we and they around the world can then survive Donald Trump's presidency and return to some sense of normalcy. I think that's why a lot of these countries haven't already pulled a quick trigger uh, on on this country and told Trump where to to where to stick it uh, essentially, um, but I, I think patience is wearing thin. I think it's showing in 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 not just these types of things like negotiations with North Korea and and different things like that our our handling of Russian stuff, but but even in economics. Uh, you you know like uh, you 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 saw what just happened at at, at the uh, G7 and and it was just basically a, a, a disaster. That one iconic photograph from uh, Merkel's people, you know, with all of them standing on one side of the table and him sitting there with his with his arms crossed. Uh, like these a toddler. people are not used. Yeah, they're not used to dealing with, that's a good analogy, Catherine, a toddler, uh, a spoiled little brat that thinks he can just do anything that he wants to do. And and I think they're hopeful, and I'm certainly hopeful that our system of government will eventually uh, rein this guy in. Uh, Otherwise, I think we would have already had more trouble with our allies than we've had so far. So they're all waiting like November, like the rest of us. Um, well, and actually about that G7 summit and that photo, I think it came out this past week that it even worse than that photo. Apparently he reached into his pocket, pulled out two starbursts and kind of uh, tossed them in Angela, Angela Merkel's direction and said, hey, don't, Angela, don't say I didn't ever give you anything. I mean, just oh a huge sign of disrespect. I mean, to do that to anybody in your president would be one thing, but to do that to another, you know, huge leader in the um, world stage, I mean, that's just kind of beyond belief. And you have to wonder, does he do it because she's not, you know, one of his people, or did he even do it some because she's female? Uh, Because Donald Trump does seem to have um, a a way uh, that he treats some folks. Catherine, um, what was your thoughts when you heard about the Starburst incident? I didn't hear about it till just now, but you know, it's just so. You know, I could have guessed. I suppose I could have guessed it, 
because it's so Donald Trump. It's so Trumpian for him to, he just acts like a, a, a three-year-old. I just, it's, it's so um, disheartening and um, embarrassing and all those things, but it's also very, uh, very scary. It's getting very scary between the, what's happening here and what's happening uh, internationally. It's, uh, it's uh, becoming a scarier world than I think any of us really expected um, in November of 2016. Yes, I, I, mean, I guess we held out a glimmer of hope, and, and that was gone pretty quickly, and it just gets worse. Uh, and the Republicans, every once in a while, somebody will say something, but nobody will do anything. Um, so there's no check there. So we are, we were, we are in a two-year waiting period because there's not enough special elections to come up um, to, to completely flip either body of Congress. Okay, so we had the G7. We know all about it. But now we have his comments about NATO where he says that we pay too much for um, – you know all this defense and actually talked about pulling troops out of germany which is just unfathomable it shows that he has no sense of history to just make such a rash decision um you know somebody had a measured approach and said well you know we think they have become a different country since the kaiser and hitler um but there's no long game like that there he's just looking at the bottom line and why do we want to defend Germany, or why do we not want Germany to have a military? It's probably more appropriate. And then we have the G, uh, the World Trade Organization Summit coming up, and he's talking about pulling out of that. Um, this is, a lot of cases, the same leaders at each of these uh, meetings. Tim, how's the next one going to go? Well, as far as the NATO thing, pulling troops from Germany, uh, he <laughs> They said he was surprised to learn that we have 35,000 troops. Or this, this goes back to a point that I've made before. Anyone else that was going to be president would already know that we had 35,000 troops there. And, uh, you know, he wanted uh, a cost analysis done of keeping the troops there, I guess, for political purposes. Now, the, the Pentagon denies that any drawdown is in the works. Uh, and I believe the Pentagon when they say that. Unfortunately, they need to remember that Trump don't even tell his own staff what he's going to do sometimes until he tweets it at 3 a.m. on his bathroom break. Uh, I'll tell you another thing, too. This thing about pulling troops out of Germany, uh, I, I, I really do think, now seriously, uh, the part of this is goes back to the fact that Donald Trump just does not personally like an, uh, Angela Merkel. He, he does not like her. I think some of that has to do with the fact that she's a female world leader. And the second part of that has to do with the fact that she doesn't bow down and worship him, which Trump, Trump has to be, you know, pretty much fond over or, you, you know, he, he doesn't want to even talk to anyone. That's, that's what these dictators have learned. They can brag on him a little bit and stroke his fur, and they can pretty well use him and get anything that, that they want out of him. Um, 
this thing about NATO, he 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 never has liked NATO. You know, he he's always yapped that he thinks other members don't contribute their fair share and blah 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 blah. And and it's the same thing with the World Trade Organization. He thinks that seriously now, guys, that they are in business to uh, give us a bad deal while they all split a, a great deal. And he's telling his <laughs> aides privately that he wants to withdraw. He he says we always get insert the F word by them. And he's hated him since he first started running. And I, I don't have to tell y'all that if we with, did withdraw from the WTO, it, it would be an economic disaster worldwide. I imagine a worldwide recession. There's, yeah, there's no good news, in other words. <laughs> it's, he figures out a way to marry foreign policy and domestic policy and screw them both up. Mm-hmm. Um, at the yeah. same time. Well, let's go ahead. Uh, we have not talked about the biggest story of the week, and we saved that for our guests. I want to welcome him for the second time. Welcome back to the show, Kelly Masias. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, David, Tim, and Catherine. It's nice to be with you again. Thanks for coming on. Great to have you back. Yeah. Well, let's kind of start off right there this week. Kind of, I mean, I think there was some indication with some of the votes that, um, that uh, Justice Kennedy made that he might be stepping down, but right in the midweek he resigned or said he was stepping down, uh, I guess, at the end of this Supreme Court session, and Donald Trump will be picking a replacement. Um, and it, it looks like the biggest thing is while if Kennedy, if whoever's replacement may vote like Kennedy voted this past week, but the successor will be probably 30 years younger and have that many more years on the court. Um, where does this leave Democrats and progressives uh, moving forward, or how do they try to angle this to not get somebody as um, possibly dangerous, I guess you'd say, as, as Trump might pick? No, I think you're right. It is dangerous. It's not possibly dangerous. And I was thinking as I was uh, listening to you all earlier that I wish I could be talking with you about something far more positive, like who's going to win the World Cup. But this is where we are. <laughs> <laughs> um and, yeah, so this, this week has been a really difficult week for progressives and Democrats, but also just for Americans in general. You know, it, you know we've had uh, a number of court cases that are in the balance, that some of which were uh, decided, some of which are still in the air. And, you know, as we think about Justice Kennedy's retirement, there are some really serious rights that are in the balance for Americans as a whole, um, not just progressives. But as we think about what's coming up and what might be uh, uh, in the balance for Democrats or progressives, you know, we're thinking about things like abortion rights and voting rights and LGBTQ rights and workers' rights. I mean, all kinds of really important things that will change the court for a generation. So as I think about um, what Democrats might do, I think there's a couple of things. I for sure think that Democrats need to prepare to fight uh, whatever confirmation or whoever's nominated in the Senate. I also think that Democrats need to be thinking about what happens in local elections. And so whatever damage might happen at the judicial level, we need to be prepared to also counteract that at the local level. And that's going to be really hard considering that we are not the majority in uh, state legislatures were not the majority in governorships. 
Um, but we need to really be thinking about our ground game as we prepare for facing this battle at the Supreme Court. Well, and, you know, you brought the point that we have no power right now at any national level, if you will. In many big states, we don't have power either. Um, so how do we fight it? Because, I mean, it's it's pretty unrealistic to say that we could hold up a nomination for – I mean, holding it up till November is one thing, but then we still have to hold up a nomination um, for close to three years. I mean, of course, the Republicans, they, they'll do any shenanigans, and they held up one for over a year um, with uh, Merrick Garland not getting confirmed. But, but realistically, how would the Democrats do something like that? I'm not completely sure, but I would say, yeah, it's, it's about uh, being consistent and, and really digging in. And I think it's also about making sure that red state Democrats are on board with the overall message, right? We have a handful of red state Democrats in places like West Virginia and in some other states that um, while they're Democrats uh, and, and that's how they run, they tend to vote uh, with Republicans a fair amount of uh, of the time, and this is not the time for that. This is really the time for across party lines. We need to be consistent, and I think there are a handful of Republicans, and I'm specifically thinking of like Collins and Murkowski, that we need to also be um, trying to pull into the fold to say that there are certain things that are already legal precedent that need to remain precedent. Um, Collins has said that for her, something like uh, Roe v. Wade is precedent already, and she's not looking to overturn that. She's been somewhat consistent in terms of voting uh, against Trump, Trump nominees or against Trump policy around uh, things like Medicare. And so we really need to be not only aligning Democrats, but also trying to reach out to moderate Republicans in, in this way when we think about the Supreme Court nomination. Yeah, now, now Susan Collins, and she's not the only one, but I know that she's, you know, a lot of times in the past, oh, well, I don't know if I can do that. And she seems to always come around and go back to the Republican roots. Um, and then, of course, you know, even if they voted down one Republican, she'd have to keep voting Republican nominations down um, over and over. I mean, do we really think that she's somebody we can depend on? David? Yes. I saw her on, um, Catherine? I don't know, I saw her on one of the shows this morning, and she was pretty, I'm talking about Olympia Snow, she was pretty um, adamant that she, there were, she said there were four, four people on Trump's list that she would not vote for because of, of concerns about precedent. She was very clear that um, she, you know, she didn't, she said, you know, she won't, ask the question, are you pro-life or pro, or, you know, what, however you want to phrase it. I hate that phrase, but, um, but she said she is, um, she believes in abortion rights and she believes it's, it's settled law and she will be very, she's very concerned about a, a new justice being, um, you know, embracing precedent. She was very clear, very, I was, impressed because you know she did vote for Gorsuch so you know we have to you know take that into account but I got the distinct impression that she was not going to budge on on you know trying to make that path to about precedent which is pretty much the clear point 
we have to, and I think that's our messaging too, that we should talk to our, you know, our voters about contacting their senators and talking about precedent, not specifically about, you know, maybe specific um, issues, but about precedent. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to Yeah, I just, I mean, but I, 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 I until, until she clear. can go, uh, you know, we're all, all inspector, you know, he would talk <laughs> a game all the time, and then finally switch parties. I mean, until they probably go that far, uh, I'm almost suspect, particularly of Susan Collins, um, based on past behavior. I mean, Kelly, are you more optimistic I I mean, always, than I am? I always get them mixed up. <laughs> so I think it's a both and for me. Um, I, I think I am uh, uh, with Catherine in the sense that they uh, folks, certain folks have made it very clear that they are looking for a particular precedent. And I don't actually think it's about them being pro-life, no matter what they, or pro-choice, no matter what they say. I think it is a little bit about judicial precedent and how, um, especially when it comes to, if you think about the senators who have been on the fence a little bit, it's actually not about aligning with uh, progressive values as much as it is about thinking about the voters and their states and thinking about things like Medicare and thinking about very practical things that their voters want. So I don't think that Susan Collins is a liberal by any means, but I think Susan Collins is thinking about what the voters of Maine want, and I think she is thinking about, um, you know, even long-term what might get her reelected, and it's actually not on a, in a hard line uh, kind of where the Republican Party is right now. So I actually... I don't know how much faith I have in her to align with progressive values as much as I do think her constituents want a particular thing. And if she has to think about what those things are, they are around probably more aligned with uh, where progressives and Democrats fall. So I think she may, uh, depending on the nominee, she could be persuaded to vote in the sense, again, that, that, Certain things like Roe v. Wade are our law, and even if they don't personally resonate with her, her voters would overwhelmingly say that these things are precedent, and those are the kinds of things that they want her to stick up for. So I think that she could potentially be a, a, a champion in that way for progressives to to count on. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. Uh, maybe scary at times. Interesting. Personally, I'm hoping he go ahead, he goes ahead and uh, points his longtime lawyer Michael Cohen because uh, that way they'll expose <laughs> Trump for all the cronyism he has, and then of course Cohen they'll uh, probably indict him at some point after, and then he can be removed from the court. And at that time, uh, we might have a better uh, landscape legislatively to get a better pick. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Tim, and then he'll ask some questions and get to Catherine. And if there's anything else, it'll come back around to me. Uh, Tim? Oh, good evening, Kelly. Glad you're with us tonight. Um, I wanted to uh, turn our attention to our state. Uh, We got a governor's race that for the first time in many, 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 many years, is on the map. Uh, as you know, Democrats in Georgia have nominated a candidate who could be our first female governor. She could be our first African-American governor, and she could be the first female African-American governor in U.S. history. Speaking as a progressive, why do progressives like Stacey Abrams so much? 
Kim, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm really excited about your governor's race, and I've been really following it since probably August of last year, but really in earnest since October. So I think progressives like Stacey Abrams for a number of reasons. First of all, you know, I, I know that when the last time I was here, which was in December of 2017, we talked about, you know, could 2018 be the year of black women in politics? And I think that's true. I think Georgia voters think that Stacey Abrams is just infinitely qualified. I mean, when you look at the the uh, scope and pool of the candidates in Georgia right now, Stacey Abrams is the one candidate who's been running on this platform that says, hey, let me talk to voters about what civic engagement looks like. Let me talk to voters about what it means to be engaged uh, through the long term, not just because I want your vote, but actually what we can do together. Um, Stacey Abrams is the one person who has gone to lots of different counties to talk to lots of different people, and she's running a race that is uh, Democrats tend to do this thing, right, every election where we – rely on uh, particular, uh, we, we rely on the base, which tends to be voters of color, and then we also rely on um, uh, white moderates to get votes. And Stacey Abrams has said, hey, actually, that's not what Georgia looks like. Georgia is almost a minority majority, and we need to think about who's voting and what it would it look like to put a progressive coalition together. And that's the campaign she run, ran. And if I'm not um, mistaken, she ran, she won in all but six, she won in all but six counties in the state, Correct. right? In the, in the right. Democratic primary. So I think people are just excited about this idea that here's this woman who represents lots of different things that maybe they can embrace and see in themselves, but also who said, let's turn kind of democratic politics on its head and say that lots of people can be involved and let me talk to lots of different people. And I think that's where people are, where they're really excited about that kind of hope and inspiration. So you you have very well described how things could be viewed in Georgia the day after the election. What would the national implications be if Stacey Abrams were, were to pull off this win on no, November the 6th? Well, Tim, as you said, I mean, this would be historic, right? This would be the first um, this would be the first black American woman governor in Georgia. This would be the first black American woman governor anywhere in the U.S. Um, and I think it also just is in line with what we're seeing, this trend around women running, candidates of color running. I think Democrats really need to get used to the idea that this is not politics as usual and the the politics of inspiration and hope and motivation are much more um, exciting to voters than the politics of fear, right? So maybe in mm -hmm. 2016 there was a sense of we got to get Donald Trump. We have to make sure to combat Donald Trump, and I think that was true for sure. But I also think people get really motivated by somebody they can get behind. And I think that if she wins, I think it will show Democrats and American general that, hey, like, people are excited about change and the possibility of hope and inspiration. I would also say that even if she doesn't win, her candidacy thus far has been historic, and I think that's a message for Democrats to pay attention to who to nominate and who to get behind in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you mentioned the words hope and change, and, and I wanted to ask you a, a, a national question. Now, we've been discussing on this show, at least until this week when we heard about the fundraiser in California, where is number 44 at? Where, where, where is President Obama? Why, why is he not out there? Um, do you think that President Obama needs to take a front and center active role in the midterms? Or, or, or how, how do you President Obama should handle the upcoming election? It's a great question, and I'm not fully sure. I, I go back and forth. As I was uh, thinking about what we talked about tonight, I was thinking about his uh, his speech to donors in California, and I kind of thought about how he had mentioned that Democrats need to get out of the place of moping and vote. And I, I my first thought was, well, who is he talking about? Because uh, certainly that's true. In the donor class, like folks need to get on board with. Um, really getting aligned with the fight and figuring out how we change things and how we, like, make a change. Um, But I also think that there's a lot of people who are out there who've already signed up for the fight and who are marching and registering to vote, registering to run in different ways. So I'm not sure what I think his role is. Um, I'm glad that he's talking to the people who continue to love and support him. And I also think even in the short time that he's been out of office, although it feels like it's been 20 years, um, <laughs> that, it, <laughs> that at this point, I think people are ready for something different. And so I, I almost think maybe it's a strategic use of time to not, you know, he's still popular, he'll be popular. But at this point, what we know, even from Donald Trump's uh, ascendancy, Bernie Sanders' ascendancy, all these kind of third party or uh, maybe independent or uh, non-traditional candidates, people want change. And I don't know that Barack Obama, even if we really, really like him and think he did a good job, represents the kind of change that we are, where we are in 2018. So I think Mm -hmm. that um, at this point, it might be a strategic decision for him to kind of uh, do some back-end politicking. Uh, as opposed to sort of being in the front of the party, because I think the party's just shifted and our politics have shifted so much, even in the last year mm-hmm. and a half. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a million more things to talk about with the upcoming midterms and plus what our uh, <laughs> friend in the White House is up to nowadays. And I'm going to turn every bit of that over to Catherine. <laughs> to wade through oh, with you. Catherine, go ahead. <laughs> I get all the hard questions. Tim, I, Tim, I love how you said our friend. It's so Southern. It's so very <laughs> polite. <laughs> well, Tim and I are friends. It's David that we are. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> We're all very good friends, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the protests and marches yesterday, uh, hundreds of thousands of people around the country, um, do we think that really has any impact? Um, I mean, I think it makes us all feel good, and I think it shows um, the people who are suffering that there are people supporting them. I think that's all really good. But in the in the ultimate, uh, does it change policy or does it um, just invigorate um, the other side to be even more um, hateful? 
what are your thoughts on that if you've had a chance to think about it? I have. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and this is one of the things that for me um, is particularly painful about the uh, Trump administration. There are lots of things that feel painful on a day-to-day basis, but, you know, thinking about kids and families being separated and and detention are just really, really um, hard lines for me. So I guess I would say that I think it's hard to feel like protests on their own do a whole lot. But actually, we have a, a, a leader right now who watches a lot of cable news and reality That's TV true. and is swayed by public perception of him. So I think under a normal presidency, it probably wouldn't make much of a difference. But I do think people protesting in mass and by the millions saying, we not only reject these policies, but we reject these pre- this president actually does make a difference. I don't know in the long term what uh, what the distinction will be because we know that uh, the policy for several weeks was that families would be separated and that there was no plan how to reunify them. But I do think the the images of people, you know, com- repeatedly saying this is not okay with us have made a dent. And I think that's why you know, within a couple of weeks, Trump turned around and said, hey, we're not going to, we won't separate families, we'll actually detain them together, which is also super problematic. But I think that those kinds of things do shift the needle. So I, I, I think there, there is some movement because people are out in the streets. It's not the kind of movement that we feel is uh, indicative of the change that we want to see, but I think it does make a difference, actually. Okay, now I want to talk about what I think was some really good news this week, and that was the um, ele- the winning candidate in the primary in New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I thought that was – I saw her again also on um, one of the new, uh, Sunday news shows today, and she's quite a compelling candidate. And I, I thought that was a really good sign that, you know, she's a woman of color. She's very progressive. She, I mean, it's New York and, you know, <laughs> but it, she did win against a, you know, longstanding congressman. And so have, have you had a chance to think about that? I mean, that, that was like the only good news I felt this week. <laughs> I'm with you. Right? I, I mean, feel like there was such little hope this week, but that was like a small <laughs> glimmer of hope exactly and the dumpster I mean, fire that was this week um yeah but she's I, very I, compelling she's she's you know very eloquent and very um you know likable which is good i mean you know we all we all wish that it didn't have to be important but it is all those things are important so what are your thoughts I'm excited by her candidacy, and I would say that what I think the the overall message for me is is that Democrats need to really listen to uh, the base. So Democrats um, keep thinking that perhaps in swing districts and perhaps in certain places will win by appealing to uh, moderate. Republicans, appealing appealing to people who are never Trumpers, and I don't actually think that's the case. Um, my my writing, I agree and my with work, you so much about that. Yeah, my my writing and my work shows that 
actually what Democrats need to be thinking about is young people of color. They, they need to be thinking about these, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call them the swing voters, but I would say uh, leaning independent or leaning third party voters. And, and they are not, um, uh, they are not uh, loyal to the, the, the party itself. And they're not necessarily loyal to um, this idea of voting against Trump. I, I keep saying this, the idea of hope and inspiration and change is really appealing to those folks. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for me, represents that. So it's very exciting to see someone who's young, someone who's enthusiastic, um, come in and uh, be the 10-term congressman um, because she just sort of spoke to the demographics and the people in her district. So I'm excited by it, and I think Democrats need to really build on that if we want to win in, in not just the midterms, but in 2020. I'm, I'm with you, sister. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Yeah, well, well, I did have one more question, but one little comment, and, and that's why I find so disheartening right now, is this, um, you, you know, the good news, and I see why that, that candidate, future congresswoman, some person, one of the general, uh, is so dynamic. But, we, you know, we need to defeat Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Mike Pence and, and Trey Gowdy and all these other people Joe Crowley really wasn't the enemy. I mean, he's a Democrat, too, so we need to defeat Republicans so we can't lose sight of the bigger uh, issue because that's who's standing in our way um, is the people that are either Donald Trump or the people that are enabling Donald Trump. Um, but the other question I had kind of – I wanted to break in on Tim, but I don't want to be rude to anybody – was, okay, Stacey Abrams, and I think actually Brian Kemp's uh, surge is doing good for her. I think she has a much better chance against Brian Kemp because if Brian Kemp is, you know, would be the governor, he would be probably the most, the least qualified, most aggressive governor since Lester Maddox that George has had. But then my question would be is if um, Stacey Abrams doesn't win, and most likely, like I'm saying, Brian Kemp's surging, Kemp wins, what's the national view going to be of Georgia? having a governor that's really probably left the Mississippi Alabama. I think the Democrats need to understand that um, if Stacey Abrams doesn't win, and I really hope she does, that it's, it's not all for naught, right? That um, the, the state has been trending purple for uh, years. And, in, in you know, if you just think about not even – um, the overall state, but in certain districts. So we have not just uh, the governorship in the balance, but in the sixth district, right? Uh, the district that Karen Handel won against John Ossoff, that Lucy McBath is running in that district, that there's a runoff next month. I mean, there's all kinds of things to suggest that Georgia, particularly, I mean, we talk about the South, but particularly Georgia is trending bluer and bluer. And I think that, if anything, Democrats would be wise to learn a lesson that we can't assume that these kinds of states, uh, because of the history and because of the past, couldn't be blue going forward and that there couldn't be a core of Democratic voters and there couldn't be, you know, uh, local elections, governorships, et cetera, that could really change the tide. So I would hope that if anything else, 
no matter what happens, and again, I'm hoping that Stacey Abrams wins, but if she doesn't, that Democrats really invest time and energy in, in states with changing demographics. Uh, because, again, um, Georgia is a place that's poised to, to represent the change in America that a lot of conservatives and a lot of racists are really afraid of. But Georgia is like battleground zero for these things. And that, for me, is really exciting no matter who wins this election. Yeah, and, and I mean, I've thought for a while, and I think it was in the book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, if you look, the two largest reliably Republican states right now are Texas and Georgia. You take them out of the Republic, Republican coalition, the Republican coalition's done. There's just too many electoral votes between, really, honestly, Texas and then uh, Georgia with it. But, I mean, at some point, you got to win elections. I mean, Beto O'Rourke exciting candidate and gets Ted Cruz, but you got to beat somebody. And so um, I just – I do get nervous that we actually have to show up and do it. We hadn't won a governor's race or actually, I guess, elected a non-incumbent Democrat since 1998 at the state level. Um, you and know, you're right. And, and, it's and been a while. It's interesting – it has, but what's interesting about that is, again, is if you look at Abrams' strategy, it's around the math, right, that um, Democrats tend to lose by, I think it's maybe 200,000 plus, 200, plus votes. And so her strategy is let's turn out the people of color, let's turn out the progressive whites, let's turn out uh, single white women. So it, I think it is doable in a state like Georgia. It's just that Democrats need to not be focused on kind of uh, – turning over the votes of moderates uh, and folks who haven't been with us and, and turning, turning out people who are aligned with us but just haven't felt a reason to vote. So I think it's an exciting time because I think that if, if the energy is concentrated on that, it absolutely could be a game-changing election. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch, and it's good to get some national attention because obviously – if we could get a Democratic governor, get a better map in Congress, get a better map in legislative affairs. And then also we were talking before we came on the show, um, Georgia, I mean, even over the past eight years, they've done a good job recruiting businesses, recruiting the movie industry. And Brian Kemp's the kind of candidate that I think we fear could completely uh, stall that and reverse that. And so if you live in the state, you got to worry about that too. So um, that's kind of what all we have on there. Well, Kelly, before you go, um, is there any other um, things you got going on at Daily Co's, big pieces you want to point people to, your Twitter feed, anything you'd like to promote? Uh, I would just say, sure, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at K-E-L-M-A-C-I-A-S, Kelly Macias, and follow me on Daily Coast, same thing, Kelly Macias. Um, I'm trying to keep up with elections. I'm trying to keep up with what's happening at current events. And I'm most certainly keeping up with all the things that are happening in terms of race and gender relations in the U.S. at the moment. There's so much to keep up with. Um, but at the end of the day, <laughs> I'm excited. I, you know, I, I agree that it's a really uh, tenuous time and we, we feel um, disappointed and worried about what happens in the Supreme Court going forward, but I'm also really hopeful at the state level about what we can do. So, you know, please follow me, and I'd love to answer any questions or talk with folks about where I think we're going. Well, Kelly, we thank you for coming on.
the most informative. Great. Thank, Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. All right. Kelly Macias, Daily Co's, um, Daily Co's elections. Find her there, obviously. She gave her Twitter handle. So uh, find different places to read her, and so glad to have her back on the show. Um, well, talking about elections, and obviously one of, to me, maybe the most critical election coming up, Tina, I think maybe for Florida. Um, it seems like we're defending states like North Dakota and West Virginia are on track to that you might not have predicted. We may flip some states like Tennessee and Arizona and Nevada that we didn't predict. But we've talked about it many times how um, we just didn't see Bill Nelson, a multi-term incumbent, having so much trouble. Doesn't seem to have any controversy in his background. And Rick Scott started off so unpopular. But we got kind of a maybe an inner working of a poll that may be part of the reason. And it was a poll of Puerto Ricans, and Puerto Ricans are the largest Hispanic Democratic constituency in Florida Cuban voters are starting to trend a little bit different, but they're still more Republican than Puerto Rican voters. But Puerto Rican voters have a positive view of Rick Scott. Um, Tim, when you read that article, how surprised were you by that? You know, I wasn't really that surprised, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, they 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 partly mentioned that about uh, you know Hurricane Maria and all that happened down there in Puerto Rico this year. But Scott is the governor of Florida. He was very proactive in his response to what was going on down there in Puerto Rico. Uh, he is actually better known among Puerto Ricans and Puerto Rican voters in Florida than than, than Senator uh, Nelson is. Uh, that poll all also showed that too. Um, I think I think what Nelson needs to do is he just start uh, saying the words Donald Trump about every other sentence because Puerto Ricans obviously hate Donald Trump. And the more you tie Donald Trump uh, to Governor Scott, the better off that he would be with that particular constituency. And that's the way to do it. And time's growing short, and he needs to start doing that right now. And that would turn this thing around because he can't lose that voting block. He needs them in central Florida uh, as an offset against what, you know, Scott will be able to run up in the panhandle and up in the northern tier of the state. The central part of the state is, is where he wins or loses the race. If he loses the Puerto Rican vote, there's his, uh, what, as much as a half a million of uh, that are registered to vote. If he, if he loses that, he's not, he's not going to get elected. Yeah, Catherine, this internal number we found in this article um, – is Bill Nelson kind of mismanaged his incumbency um, in the state? I just wonder if he felt like, um, you know, he was well-liked and didn't need to really worry about it. And now he's hopefully he's seen the writing on the wall and will step up his game. And like Tim said, he needs to connect Scott with, Trump at every opportunity um, because Trump is not well liked in Florida in general. 
but especially by the Puerto Rican uh, community. So um, I, I don't I, I don't want to say that he mismanaged his campaign. I think maybe he just uh, was more optimistic about his um, his chances than he is, as we now see by these internal polls. So hopefully he'll read them and you know get on the stick. Yeah, and, and Alex said I don't even mean campaign. I mean incumbency, uh, because like you know Joe Manchin, he hadn't really had a campaign yet either. It's just kind of starting, but he's kind of known in a way that he can be safe in a state that's really much tougher for Democrats than Florida should be. I mean, Florida's uh, you know went for yeah, Democrats but, three out of but, the last uh, five but, presidential elections. Jim, but. Mansion doesn't have somebody like Scott as an opponent. Right. De, uh, uh, right. Nelson, he, he 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 should not have overlooked Governor Scott. I don't see how anybody could have done that. This guy not only is a fairly now popular governor, uh, he he is also able to spend millions of dollars of his own money. And he has been out there on TV just pounding, 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 pounding. Uh, Nelson really needs to get going, or this, this, he, this, this one may slip away. I mean, it, it would be very easy for that to happen. This guy is yeah. a very formidable opponent. I don't see how he could have overlooked him. Yeah, I mean, I could just, but I can see a situation where we pick up those three states I mentioned. And then we drop this one and say Missouri, and then we're 50-50. Mike Pence is 51, and, and we have no power in the Senate again. I mean, of course, we're then flipping one vote instead of two. or If we one person are going to win chamber, the Senate. But we really need to go ahead and take it by a clear if, vote. If we're going to win um, the Senate this year, David, um, obviously with the way thing, this thing is breaking out, uh, we can't afford to lose even one seat of our own. We ju- we right. just can't do it, or we're not going to win the Senate. Yeah, I think I think you could drop one if you take the straight of Arizona, um, Tennessee, and Nevada. I mean, you can you I can drop one on that. Um, I, 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 I know. I'm that. saying. I mean, you could somehow take Texas or or something as well. I mean, there's <laughs> other routes. But clearly, uh, it seems like defending Florida would be a whole lot easier than winning Texas. Um, right. Think. And so that's why I find it so vexing. And uh, um, hopefully Bill Nelson and the National Democratic Party that's, I guess, going to send aside money can figure it out. And I agree, you got to tie uh, Rick Scott to Donald Trump. Because even when we say, oh, well, that's not such a bad Republican – or he's a good personal story. So many times, they're still a complete enabler for Donald Trump, and, and that becomes the problem because they just won't have the gumption to. Him. And, and Rick Scott, I have right. no indications that he would either. Um, right. It's pretty critical that Bill Nelson return. Well, uh, thanks again to Kelly for coming on the show, and Bill Nelson. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united 
America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest...